Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Richard Hodges, the Williams Director, and it's a great pleasure as ever to welcome you to this, the penultimate in our Great Discoveries series, which so many of you have followed from uh, across the world, I suppose, and we're going to another part of the world tonight. Dr. Joanne Van Tilburg is an archaeologist and the director of the Easter Island Statue Project. This is an innovative archaeological inventory that has produced a, a huge analysis of over a thousand monolithic statues. I'm sure you're going to see a lot of those thousands tonight. She is a research associate and member of the interdisciplinary faculty of the famed Kotzen Institute of Archaeology at the University of uh, California, Los Angeles, where she also directs the UCLA Rock Art Archive. And she's won many awards, uh, notably in 2001, the California Governor's Award for Historic Preservation. Amongst her many activities, since she uh, graduated from the University of Minnesota and got a, where she got a uh, her PhD at California at the University of Los Angeles in 1986. Since then, amongst other things, she's written uh, a book about the, uh, the Edwardian archaeologist, Catherine Rutledge, the first woman to conduct fieldwork on Easter Island, uh, in a book called Among Stone Giants, The Life of Catherine Rutledge and Her Remarkable Expedition, to Easter Island. On Easter Island as well, she's made a number of films, notably for Nova, and she's run many other projects associated with rock art. So with no more ado, I will introduce you to Dr. Joanne Van Tilburg. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here at this storied museum and to view its collections and to meet all of you. I appreciate the invitation. Um, as you have just been told, we're going to be talking tonight about Easter Island. And for those of you, um, could you please raise your hand if you've actually been to Easter Island? You see, it's always amazing. In every group, there are quite a few people who've actually been there. I love that. Well, um, as we carry on and as we talk tonight about the project that, that we've been engaged in on Easter Island, um, if you have questions, please save them to the end and then we'll, we'll try to address as many of them as we can. Um, I'd like to also say that this presentation tonight is dedicated to the memory of Dr. Roger C. Green, who passed away at the end of last year. He was uh, at the University of Auckland for most of his career, although born an American. And um, over the years since I received my doctorate with the study of the Easter Island sculpture in 1986, Roger cast a very big and broad net across the Pacific and gathered to him in Australia and New Zealand um, scholars and students who were interested in Polynesia. And I was fortunate to be one of those people. So um, we miss him and uh, this presentation is dedicated to him. The other gentleman standing in the photograph with me in 1982 is Bent Danielson, who sailed with Tor Heyerdahl on the Contiki. What we're going to be talking about tonight is just one phase of the work that we've been doing since 1982. And this project is one that we initiated this year 
after a five-year mapping foray in Rano Raraku Quarry. And the quarry, which we'll learn about more as we go along, is the place where well over 95% of the 1,042 statues we have documented to date were carved. And so what you're looking at here is the initiation of the project that I'm going to be talking to you about tonight. I will say by way of preface that our work has not been just concentrated in the quarry. From the inception of this project, it's been an island-wide project. So that what is background really to what we're discussing tonight is a, a survey and an inventory that has literally covered every square inch of Rapa Nui. The first phase excavations were initiated just a few months ago, and this is the beginning of that process. Here, just to orient you a bit, is Rano Raraku. You can see it indicated on the map. It's a small volcanic crater formed of consolidated lapilli tuff, or ash. This very, very important natural resource is uh, probably one of the single most uh, significant stone resources in all of Polynesia, and for reasons I'll talk to you about a little bit more. The environment of Ranuwaraku is very important because it's a discrete environment separate from that of the rest of the island. It's an enclosed or more or less enclosed space. And as you look at the pictures of the island overall, you'll notice that there's been a, a great deal of deforestation. The island today has trees. Those trees have been replanted in large part by CONAF, which is the Cooperación Nacional Forestal, which is the National Park Service in Chile. So the reforestation on Easter Island, which is relatively recent, has been a result of that program. Rano Raraku, however, because it's a discrete environment, was very, very important in terms of our choice of that site for the project I'm going to describe to you. The interior of the quarry is a semi-discrete environment, which is very important. It has variable natural conditions, and they're not the same within the quarry as they are outside of the quarry, nor are they precisely the same as the rest of the conditions on the island. The statue preservation methods that I'm going to be describing to you and that we're using depend upon us understanding what that unique environment is like understanding it and describing it. We need to do that in order to understand the impact on the stone surface conditions um, of the statues in the quarry. The other thing that's really crucial to understand is that the quarry interior itself once was home to a thriving forest. So in fact was the entire island. These forests were mosaic forests or gallery forests. You don't need to think of the island as covered with trees, but the island was covered with a patchwork of forestry. And in the quarry itself, those trees were lush and, and the canopy was very high, and then underlying the, the forest would be other vegetation, a rich environment. So our environmental data collection, which you see here in process, is in the hands of Monica 
Bahamondas Prieto, and Christian Fisher. Monica is with the uh, Centro de Conservación y Restauración in Santiago de Chile, and Christian Fisher is with University of California, Los Angeles. This is an innovative program that allowed us to install to each of the three statues we're dealing with in this first phase of the excavations, a series of environmental monitors, and those monitors are uh, collecting data on soil condition, um, wind velocity, air temperature, air moisture, and so on. But very interestingly, and for the first time, I think, in the history of Rapa Nui, this uh, program is collecting data on stone surface temperature. And what uh, the conservators have determined, or what they hypothesize and believe they can show, is that stone surface temperature is one of the very key variables in terms of statue conservation. It's important for you to know that the lapilli tuff of which the statues are carved is a very friable material. It's, it's very easily damaged by fluctuating environmental conditions. And over the 20 plus years, maybe near 30 years now, that I've been working on Easter Island, the statues are visibly changed. And most of our early photographs and early documentation can, does not today match the statues as they currently appear. We've lost uh, at least 10 and sometimes more centimeters of stone surface on every single statue. So that the statues, they're not exactly melting like sugar cubes in the rain, but they are melting and we're losing information all of the time. The single most important thing I think we've been able to contribute to statue preservation to this point is a very detailed database describing the statues. I would like to now interject before I go any, uh, go any further with the talk, is that the work that we are doing is supported by the Coatsen Institute of Archaeology at UCLA, but also very significantly by the Site Preservation Initiative of the Archaeological Institute of America. We have received the second grant in a sequence of grants that they're working on for statue preservation, or for preservation of sites and objects all over the world. It's also uh, important for you to know that um, Rana Raraku Quarry, and indeed all of Easter Island, is a World Heritage Site and on UNESCO's list of endangered sites. So the work that we're doing is um, literally in the eye of the world at the moment. The conservation threats to the statues, as you can see very clearly, are the subtropical climate, Introduced vegetation, we have a terrible problem with that. Some new plants that were introduced in the last 50 years are literally eating the stone surface. Some of the statues, many of them stand upright, but a great deal, a very large number of them, are lying down. And these statues have grass, grass seeds, and other kinds of plants actually growing out of their surfaces. Uncontrolled livestock is a major problem, and I'll tell you more about that in a minute, largely because um, the Rapa Nui refuse to corral their stock. Um, this is part of a tug of war they're in with their Chilean um, authorities. And as a consequence, the horses and the cattle, but in particular the horses, are damaging all of the statues. Unmonitored tourism is very serious. There are 4,000 people living on Rapa Nui. When I came to Easter Island, there were less than 800 tourists a year 
who arrived on an island peopled then by 2,000 people. So the Rapa Nui population has doubled by people moving in from the mainland, and the tourist numbers right now are 57,000 a year. And the island does not have the infrastructure to deal with that. So tourism is unmonitored. There's undirected community action. Some uh, segments of the Rapa Nui population wish to get out into the countryside and work on the statues, work on sites, build walls, restore um, archaeological features and so on, and, and they'll do that. I mean, groups of people will go out on a Sunday afternoon and rebuild a historic wall or rebuild a prehistoric wall. But this is done without any kind of monitoring or supervision, so there are some issues about that. And the bigger issue, the larger enveloping issue, is political conflict. But what we know to date, with all the branches of science that have come together, is that on Rapa Nui, deforestation was the product of ancient cultural behavior that caused an ecological calamity and set the stage for the kinds of issues that we're dealing with today, not just for statue conservation, but in terms of um, the inter intersocial, interpolitical, and other ways in which Rapa Nui people are trying to deal with not only the outside world, which is suddenly at their doorstep in huge numbers, but their own internal issues. And how do we know? How do we know about deforestation on Rapa Nui? We know it from Brown of Oraku, because there have been three separate going all the way back to the Heyerdahl expeditions, attempts to core the lake in the interior of Ranobaraku. And those corings have been very instrumental in teaching us that the gallery forests or mosaic forests on Easter Island were composed in large part of palms. Palms regenerate through the nuts or seeds and we have a situation on Easter Island where Rapa Nui colonizers came and brought with them the Polynesian rat, which was a food for Polynesian people on their rafts and canoes as they settled all the islands of the Pacific. And it has been shown unequivocally in archaeological sites that some of those palm seeds were rat gnawed. And this suggests that that would have done damage to some aspect of regeneration. However, the overwhelming evidence is very clear that rat not gnawed palm seeds or nuts would not have been um, at a significantly high enough level to, to prevent the regeneration of the palm forest. And we have uh, some recent excavations in the interior that very strongly show that flooding and the consequent loss of denuded topsoil in the island's interior took place around AD 500. So we have some very good evidence as to what was basically the end point of deforestation. And then, of course, we have climate change and the effect of El Nino in, in the Pacific. Those issues so far are not very well understood. There's more information that needs to be forthcoming about that. But as we try here to sort of set the stage, if you will, for the monumental uh, construction and sculpture that is unique in the Pacific, and that took place on Easter Island, it's important to know that the interaction of politics, of religion, 
and of environment actually produced a very fertile ground for monumental architecture to be, to, to blossom, but also created a situation that had as its almost inevitable endpoint a very disastrous ecological situation. There are two models really for the settlement of the Pacific. One model is called the compressed model, and that suggests that Rapa Nui people did not settle the island until about 1200 AD or 1250 AD, that the culture developed very rapidly, and that deforestation was the result of uh, some human behavior, but also the rat nod, palm nuts that I talked about, and so on. There's another model, that's the regional model, and that's the model that I ascribe to, subscribe to. And that model is built on 72 combined Rapa Nui dates, of which 27 are calibrated radiocarbon dates. So for those of you who are interested in this aspect of, of the work, this work was created by Roger Green, and he developed a sequence for uh, the events, the structure of events, and their trajectory on Easter Island based on these 72 dates. This work, which has incorporated my research and that of others, has been fundamental to establishing the timeline for statue construction. You know, I'm sure, that you cannot directly date a statue made of stone. You can date the stone in some ways but you cannot date directly the statue. Indeed, what's required is to get an associated or an indirect date, if you will, from that on the ground that is associated with the statue. And for us on East Rodden, what that means is the monumental architecture. When was it built? How was it built? What does it look like? How did it proliferate? And how do the statues fit with it? So my understanding and, uh, of the trajectory of the development of monolithic architecture and megalithic construction on Easter Island really comes from this rather solid base of 72 combined dates. Of those 72 dates, there are only these four stages called event phases that are of interest to us here today. These are the four periods within which we can fit statues and the architecture associated with them. So let's go now, and I'll tell you a story, <laughs> about the colonization of Rapa Nui. As early as 998 AD, it seems, there were Polynesian people on Easter Island. We have some equivocal dates for that early settlement. However, we have very good dates for their certain settlement on Easter Island between 1100 and 1000 AD. They came from we know not where, but they landed at Anakena Bay. And they came, we know, from Rapa Nui oral traditions in two canoes, 91 feet long, containing the founding ancestor, a man named Hotu Matua. They landed at Anakena Bay, and within a very short time, less than 300 years, they had already surpassed the early construction of very simple structures and were moving into megalithic architecture. You can see here the site called Ahu Now Now, and that's the site that I'm going to talk to you about in some detail. Can you see the little inset map in the corner? There's a yellow dot that indicates where Ahu Now Now and Anakena is relative to the quarry. 
Now has very good dates for Ahu Now Now One, and that is that early structure that you see being excavated in the black and white photograph. That structure was excavated by a team funded by Tor Heyerdahl in the 1980s. And they uncovered the first level of this early structure. And what did it look like? It was a paved court called a marae in exactly the same form and following the same building traditions as that that those of you who've traveled the Pacific would recognize from Tahiti, from Mangareva, from Mangai, from many different islands. A traditional Polynesian structure called a marae or a tuahu. So that date is 1360 to 1420. There were no monumental structures, monumental statues associated with this phase, but there were small portable tiki-like figures. At that phase, 1360 to 1420 AD, there are documented petroglyphs, and that's of course my other interest, the two-dimensional art called rock art. But Heyerdahl and his team found petroglyphs carved into the walls of the first stage of Ahu Now Now One that represent vaca. And vaca is a Polynesian word meaning canoe. And the designs that you see here etched into many statues across the island, which we have documented, most of those uh, vaca follow the, well, I would say 99% of them, follow the same format, the same traditional um, design as those found at Ahu Now Now. Therefore, we conclude that the vaca is associated with the early settlement people with Hotumatua. Ahu Now Now 3 has been reconstructed on the basis of several things. This again is the final stage of one site and one site only, but it is the site associated with the founding ancestor. This diagram that you see in front of you was constructed on the basis of five different archaeological reports. So what we see there is that between 1420 and 1465 AD, less than 300 years, after the establishment, clear establishment of Rapa Nui people on Easter Island, they were building highly elaborated architecture and erecting on that architecture statues that were five meters tall. They were also placing on the heads of those statues, and this is on just about 100 statues total on the island, these red headdresses called pukao. These pukau, the one that you see here illustrated on both the photograph and on the statues and the, the drawing that you see, had to come from approximately 10 kilometers away. So they rolled these very large cylinders to the sites where they erected them with or on the statues. Interestingly enough, after Heyerdahl excavated at Now Now, another group of Rapa Nui people excavated there, and in, in their unpublished excavations, they found coral eye inserts that we know were placed in the eyes of some statues. We've been able to reconstruct the excavation information to determine that these eyes belong to all of the statues standing on the last phase of the Ahu Now Now Three architecture. So now what you see, you can put some pieces together. You've got a very large platform, 
that's built in the traditional Polynesian way, that's elaborated quite romantically with redstone and, and white coral and so on, has five meter tall statues on it, and each of these statues is elaborated with a very sophisticated system, an engineering system, that allows the placement of eyes in the statue after they were erected, not before, and the hats on the statue or the headdresses. We can move across the island to another site, which is to the southwest on the completely separate coast, and we see a statue very similar very similar to the ones at Ahu now now. And this statue is within the same time frame. This is Ahu Vinapu 1 and Vinapu 2. The pictures that you see here are what the Ahu looks like today. The statues have been thrown violently to the ground. And, and the Ahu on which they stand has been destroyed. But the statues at their height look like this, about five meters tall, wearing pukau, having their eye inserts, but interestingly enough, some new, a new wrinkle has been added, and that is the tattoo on the neck. Perhaps you can see that. But around 1400, Rapa Nui people began to elaborate statues with carved tattoos. Back to Anakena and a neighboring site of Ahu now now, and not much later, just about the same time frame, we have another site called Aturehuki, but look at this statue. This statue weighs over 90 tons. It's very robust, it's very strong, it's very big and heavy looking, heavy of features, and yet all the design elements are more or less similar. And then to the opposite side of the island, near the quarry, around 1500, this is the largest um, religious and performance site in all of Polynesia. This, this site has 15 erect statues. They were once toppled. They were re-erected in the 1990s. And there are over 45 statues that were once present on this site. So by 1500, we, we have a continuation, not much changed whatsoever, in the statue design, form, shape, and so on, but we're looking at bigger, heavier, more robust statues, and many more of them. And what does this mean? What does this talk to us about in terms of human terms? Because after all, archaeology is a science dedicated to learning more about people, not just structures, not just statues, but the people who made them. And that's, of course, one of our most, most pressing issues today, is to find out more about the Polynesian people on Rapa Nui, who, by the way, have no written history. So, what have we learned? We've been able to begin to match statues with families. There are 12 named, named lineages on Easter Island, all of which have descended from the same founding ancestor. And there are 12 major ceremonial sites around the island. There are many more. There are approximately 300 ceremonial sites. But 12 of them are the most elaborated and are associated with specific families. The moai form is universal. Some shapes and some details are unique, but the platforms change and become more elaborated over time. So think about this for a minute, because you have this dichotomy where the architecture on the island, on the land itself, 
grows, changes, evolves, becomes more complicated, becomes more decorative, becomes more elongated, in general just blossoms as an architectural art form. The statues, in contrast, become larger, become heavier, change slightly, but in general, the same stone, the same form, the same tools, and so on. So there, there's clearly something going on here. And what is that? What can the statue inventory tell us about what actually happened on Easter Island? At about 1500, we know from oral traditions that Rapanui society was divided into two unified groups. On the one hand was the Kotu'u. They are the people associated with Ahu Nau Nau and the, and the highest rank within the founding ancestral clan or lineage. Hotuiti, in contrast, is the lower ranked area. These people are all from the same family. They all trace their lineage back to Hotumatua, but they're from younger sons, not the eldest son. So their link to the founding ancestor is somewhat um, more circuitous than that which is more direct from Kotu'u. So these two loose-knit confederations balance each other in rank and status. But what happens? Rank and status begin to change. What you see here is the distribution of statues. The distribution of statues, the, each of these yellow dots is from one to 40 statues. So you're looking at Hotuiti as having a disproportionate number of statues relative to their status as a group. However, interestingly enough, even though the distribution patterns and even though the total numbers vary, there's almost near, well, there's near parity in statue height. Ahutupitukura, which is up near Anakena, the top picture, that statue was 9.8 meters tall, weighed about 80 to 90 to 100 tons. It was successfully erected and a pukau, or top knot, was placed on its head. On the other side of the island from it, in Hotuiti, a statue almost the same, 9.94 meters, fell before it was successfully erected. But these two statues are the tallest statues that actually made it to their individual architectural monuments and were either erected or nearly erected. And they're almost the same height. And weight, by the way. So what's happening? What are we dealing with? We really have to look at this lack of balance. Because in Polynesian societies, their religious beliefs are, uh, are organized in such a way that they encourage, motivate, and support keeping balance in their society, in their culture, between these higher and lower ranked family members. Those of you who are familiar with modern Polynesian societies, Hawaii and elsewhere, it's the same today. What's going on with this inverse relationship that we know exists between the sociopolitical district status and the sizes of ceremonial sites and the numbers of statues? Hotuiti, the lower rank section of Easter Island, had, we know from archaeological evidence, a higher level of agricultural production, a larger concentration of population, more unified and complex ceremonial architecture, more and heavier statues, and it had 
Radovaraku quarry, that stone resource within each territory. What you see here, by the way, is a, a look at the proportionate relationships of statues over time. And it's important to realize that we're not looking at an, uh, a trajectory that starts at A and goes up and falls or, or is smooth and even. This is a trajectory that goes in fits and starts. So we have a mosaic pattern, really, of statue uh, size and weight over the island. And that mosaic pattern is directly related to the, to the amount of food that each individual chieftain could, could produce in order to fund the effort of carving, moving, and erecting statues. Within this pattern and within the resource called Rano Raraku, we have uh, in Hotuiti a, a very, very interesting phenomenon that's going on. If you look here at this image, you see shadows in the photograph. You see what looks like vegetation. These black shadows are farms, the remnants of farms. This was the most productive agricultural area on Easter Island. The quarry was right in the middle of it. The ground in front of this quarry and, and all around it is just littered with tools that were used for carving statues. Importantly, now I want you to keep this image in your mind if you can, but if you were to trace a line around the periphery, the exterior periphery of this quarry, at the same contour level, you would come up with something very, very interesting. First of all, you would see that there are sections of the quarry that are almost impenetrable. In these sections, some of the smaller statues were carved. And in these sections, the smaller statues were sent to the lower-ranked lineages. So the least, um, the, the, the part of the quarry that was least amenable, if you will, to being worked was the part of the quarry that was assigned to the people that were lower in status. But also, on the exterior periphery, in that line that you've just traced in your imagination, these red dots represent a very interesting phenomenon. They represent a line of structures called Haripahenga or Harivaka, and you see the remnants of them here. These are elliptical houses that are associated unequivocally with the higher ranked chiefs and priests of all Rapa Nui lineages. So what you're looking at, basically, is a line of these houses that, circ that, that, that circum, what's the word I'm looking for, that went round the base of the quarry, protecting it, protecting access to it. And on the exterior, we have some of the biggest, some of the most beautifully preserved, and some of the latest, really, statues that were created in the quarry. The quarry, by the way, has 331 statues in it. In the interior, we have something quite different. The cliffside that you see in the photograph is at a slope approximately 28 to 32 degrees. It's here where we've been mapping for the last five years. And this is what we found, a very interesting thing. This is our map. And you see that the quarry itself is divided into two districts, east and west, just like the island is. The red squares that you see represent uh, elliptical house foundations, just like those that ring the exterior of the quarry. They appear at, to, to the west at the entrance to the quarry. They appear to the east at the 
portion where you leave the quarry, and in the middle, where no statues were made, they, another Haripayanga appears. So what you've got, basically, is guard shacks guarding the entrance to the quarry, and then the sections of the quarry assigned to and divided into east and west districts, echoing the socio-political uh, alignment of the exterior. The area that's in yellow on this map is called Quarry 2. And it's here where we're currently excavating. Quarry 2 has a series of statues in it. This is our map. Number 156 and 157 are the two statues that you see in this photograph. These are the statues that we're currently digging. One of them has been badly disturbed, and it was disturbed originally by, by the Routledge expedition in 1914. Catherine and William Scoresby Routledge came to Easter Island and stayed for 17 months. And they literally uh, dug their way from one side of the island to another without any archaeological controls and no reports. Um, so unfortunately, what you're looking at here is the fruit of that labor, and that is the back of one of these statues. The two statues are referred to as Papa and Papa's wife. And those were names, nicknames really, that were given to the statues by a Rapa Nui man named Langi Topa, who, when Catherine Routledge asked him for the names, gave her them on the basis of what he saw as the relationship between Catherine and Scoresby Routledge. Catherine's dominant personality had made a very lasting impression on the Rapanui people who worked with him. So Papa's wife is much taller than Papa. The statue has on its back the vaca that we've been talking about. And these are very elaborate and very distinct um, carvings that um, are Interesting in that they are a direct comparison to carvings on the back of some other very famous statues that we've documented, including one called Hoahakanana Ia, which is in the British Museum in London. This is what we've been able to reconstruct on the basis of um, our data dealing with the excavation levels and the surface documentation changes over time for one of the statues in Quarry 2. So that what you're seeing is the ways in which um, the dirt levels, so to speak, have changed from 1914 to 2007. This is very, very important to the conservators. They need to understand and work with, as we excavate and reveal the backs and the fronts of these statues, they need to understand what of the uh, damage lines, so to speak, that, that we're revealing can be related to, to the actual exposure of the statues over time. So this um, visual history, by the way, we've compiled such a history for every single statue that was excavated in Rano Baraku, and there are 209 statues out of 313 that were essentially vandalized by the Routledges and people who came after them. So it's a very serious situation on a World Heritage Site. What we also have here is diagrams showing our excavation grid that's being applied to the statues in Quarry 2 with those sections that have already been excavated shown in color. So we're now beginning uh, these excavations, but we need to be, as obviously, extremely um, 
well coordinated with the conservators so that we can reveal these levels of change over time in a, in a, in a contained and well-documented way. So looking at the big picture, so to speak, of the archaeological survey of our data in the context of the 72 combined dates that I talked to you about, also our data in the context of Eastern Polynesia and how Eastern Polynesia developed over time, we see that we can conclude certain things about Rapa Nui culture. One of the things that we can conclude is that the elaboration of ritual architecture accompanied social stratification. That seems self-evident, but we can now show that it's true. We can also show that there were significant changes in architecture and statues that took place over a relatively short time period. We can show that in, a, in, in general, Rapa Nui people changed their ahu, changed their statues every two generations. So that's a lot of work that's being accomplished. That innovations in statue design are associated with religious complexity. That we can no longer look at Rapa Nui religious culture as a static um, representation of religious thinking. Rather, it's, it's a religious complex that changed a great deal over time. And we have to now begin to tease out from the architecture and the sculpture those things that teach us about religious belief. We also know that there's certainly new sacred regalia that accompanied new rituals, and we see that in the ways in which statues were decorated and tattooed. So as the statues became more elaborated over time, so too did body art and other kinds of regalia associated with the presentation of status and rank. Rituals involving fertility and warfare replaced the earlier cult of chiefly status and statues. So what we started with at the beginning was a rather conservative elevation of chiefly status and family rank through the stage that, that rejected the statues and toppled and destroyed the architecture. And then new rituals developed, most of which we can show were associated with warfare and competition and probably sacrifice and possibly cannibalism. Finally, we know from work in other islands that what happened on Easter Island in terms of sculpture and architecture is no different really than what happened in other related islands in East Polynesia, such as Tahiti and Mangareva. It follows the same trajectory. Similar things happened. Similar kinds of structures evolved. It's only on Rapa Nui that statues became as key to the representation of chiefly status as, they, as we believe they did. That happened nowhere else in the Pacific. And I have to say that one of the things that I witnessed in the last uh, six, no, three weeks is uh, an enactment in the modern world of some of those ancient traditions of competition and jealousy and warfare. And that is that archaeological sites on Easter Island, two of them, one of them was ours, was vandalized, both of them. And they were vandalized by Rapa Nui people from a competing lower status family to those Rapa Nui people who are currently working on the archaeological sites and currently heading the government of Easter Island. So 
when people say to me, why did they, how did they topple all those statues? I can tell you how they did it. They got liquored up and went out there. They enacted in a very profound way and struck out quite, quite um, fiercely at people that they felt were surpassing them in, in, within their community. And that, that has happened. The, the government of Easter Island is currently struggling with that and working with that. I show you this picture of, of my man Jojo in order to show you that no matter what happens on Easter Island, in the end, there's all smiles and thumbs up. Thank you very much.